Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Mark Dever to the studio. Mark has served as a senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., since 1994. He's also the president of Nine Marks Ministries and has authored numerous books and articles. He's on the campus of Midwestern Seminary this week for our annual Nine Marks Conference with this year's theme on evangelism. Mark, it's great to have you back on Preaching and Preachers. Brother, it's always great to be here with you. Yeah, look, it's always fun to talk and today to get to talk in a way that's captured for our listeners. And uh, the listeners primarily are local church ministers, pastors, seminary students. So I know today's topic will be particularly relevant and helpful to them. So today we're talking about preparing your congregation for their next pastor. Oh, you're only saying this because I'm old. Well, you are old. But that's not the only reason I'm saying Come it to on. you. So you're, you're 62, I'm, right? Yeah, but I mean, when I was 26 and I was here, would you have asked me that question? Well, one never knows when the next pastor may that's come. That's so true. So, or the next president. Or the next president. Or the next anything. And next right. anyone. That's right. So joking aside, you are 62. Again, yep. you're, you're not 82. You're yep. 62. Yeah. Yep. Um, don't know fully what your plans are for your future, Lord willing and, and Lord enabling, but but I know you're not thinking of retirement anytime soon, correct? Correct. And uh, we look at certain friends in ministry, like Dr. John MacArthur, still pastoring now. I guess he's 80, will be 84 this year, I think, and um, is continuing to serve. Really? I believe he was born in 1939, as I recall. Wow. So so 84 this year. Okay. And, then, and then obviously a commitment to serve, evidently, as long as health would permit. Uh, other friends in ministry who have John chose, Piper handed it over ten years ago. John Piper handed it over ten years ago. So other friends in ministry that that, that chose a a more intentional plan transition. The Lord called James Montgomery Boyce home very quickly. Very quickly, nineteen ninety nine or nine. Yeah, it was nineteen ninety nine. And yeah. you know how I know that, no. Mark? Two reasons. One, I remember where I was when I was told he had cancer. Yeah, but I also was visiting Tenth Presbyterian Church with my family on a Sunday morning. In the summer of 2014, and I was introduced to Mrs. Boyce. Yeah. And I told her that morning how much her husband's ministry meant to me. And she said, mm-hmm. well, today, today is the 15th anniversary of his passing. Wow. And so the point is different callings and different circumstances that we don't know. That's but right. it, it, it's appropriate for every minister to be thinking about yeah. his success, regardless of age or of personal ambitions and expectations, right? Yeah. So like right now— I don't have a person that I'm wanting to make sure Capitol Hill Baptist Church calls after me, but I do very much want to train the church in knowing what it means to be a Christian, what the gospel is, what a church is, and therefore them knowing what it is they need to be looking for in a pastor. They need to have a pastor call someone to serve them as their main preacher who understands what a church is and what a a healthy church is. So— if we go further upstream, that's kind of how you went up at Capitol Hill, right? Yeah. You, you wrote a letter. Was it was it to Capitol Hill about what no, they should be looking for? No, or no? no that was uh, I had written this letter to the church I uh, planted up in New England. Okay. And they told me they were just going to go to the association and get a pastor when they had really been calling folks who who I discipled or who had been discipled by guys I discipled. And uh, I was concerned that if they just grabbed sort of normal pastor that normal pastor might not realize how unusual the church was that he was stepping into with its expositional sermons and plural eldership and, uh, you know, various conclusions on membership and discipline. So I wrote out a letter, which then later became Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It was these nine aspects of the church life that I wanted to make sure they understood. So that letter, in one sense, began as a letter of counsel to a church looking for a pastor. 
So I could revert to that original letter and send that to my own elders and just go, brothers, I think this is what you want to lead the church to find uh, when I'm not serving this way anymore. So let me, let me begin to probe you with some questions here. Do you have a personal conviction about your own intended longevity at Capitol Hill? I do not. You do not. Okay. Do you have, or th- th- therefore you would not have convictions that, that, that you would project onto others about? Oh, no, no, no. Service. I have convictions for others, just not for myself. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I, I don't. So you don't. So more yeah. of a matter of prudence, of yeah. a sense of God's calling, well, leadership. Christian freedom. Christian Great freedom. freedom in Christ. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So having said that, then as you've aged 28 years at Capitol Hill, yeah. have you thought about transition and succession? I would assume you have in a more focused way over the years. Well, I've aged so much that uh, one uh, young intern and his wife who were standing in my office just a couple of weeks ago looked down at this picture of me under the glass of me and Connie. We're 21. We just got married. And the wife asked, is this you looking at me pointing to that? And I just thought my 40 years have really done their job, haven't they? You know, so yes, aging does happen to all of us. And how has that aging shaped your attention to succession? Uh, I think I was always more than normally aware of it as a church historian. You know, so even a long pastor, it seems short in one sense. Let's say I'm there 28 years. Well, that's not that long. You know, 28 years, a little more than a quarter of a century. It's not a lot. So I'm always kind of thinking of the flow in of one thing to another and how it affects it. So. Yeah, I think I've always been sort of mindful of it. So then zooming out from yourself personally. So, so yeah, for ahead. example, when I've taken over a church with a lot of members who've been there for 60 years, which was the case when I got there, I have to say that the sense of responsibility I had for an older member, for their spiritual state, when I'm only getting them when they're 89 and deaf, is greatly diminished than the sense of responsibility I have for the 24-year-old that I lead to Christ and that they're being taught everything they know under my ministry. I really do think that Hebrews 13 accounting that, you know, pastors like me will give for that 89-year-old is greatly attenuated by the other men who stood there before me when that person was younger and more able to hear and think and understand and respond. So I do think I, I must have some responsibility. I also think I have less than some of the guys who've gone before me. So for those listening to our conversation, and maybe they're 28, 32, and they're thinking, well, this just seems so distant. Like, why, why should they give attention even now to who their successor will be? In case, in case you finish your ministry at that church before Christ returns. How, have, how has your tenure, your, your increased tenure, how has that shaped your view of funerals that you would officiate and meaning— do you find yourself enjoying those more or less as the decades pass by? Oh, I, I'm unusual in this. Even when I was in my 30s, young 30s, early 30s, I've always preferred funerals to weddings. You know, as a pastor, I've never particularly enjoyed doing weddings. There's lots of stuff that's not biblical that people care about a ton. And I see a lot of young Christian couples just sub- submitting themselves to the wedding industry, which causes divisions in the church between the rich and the poor. I mean, it's just, it's just a bad witness for Christ. So I I don't like the wedding industry at all. Funerals, uh, I've always loved. Uh, I love being able to stand at the end of life, and nobody really cares that much about a lot of the smaller things. Nobody's getting in arguments over, generally speaking anyway, over details of a service. But you're thinking about the person, their life, uh, the gifts God gave them, what God gave us through them. If they're a Christian, you can rejoice in the hope they had. If they're not, you stand there and you give a warning you know, you preach the gospel clearly. The, the, the grave is a great place to preach the gospel from. You know, I was sharing with my wife recently 
and I said it kind of as a throwaway line, but I did mean it sincerely. I said, you know, one of my goals in life is to personally officiate the funerals of many faculty and senior colleagues here at the seminary. And she kind of looked at me funny, and, and I said, that's not just a statement of, like, my personal ambitions around longevity. I said, it's because if you're doing someone's funeral as a colleague or a faculty member, uh, if you're officiating it, that says a lot about myself, meaning that th- that would mean I have been faithful here over yeah, decades. That's right. Another one on safe home. Yeah, it would say that about a colleague, that yeah. they've been faithful here. Yeah. It would say something about our relationship and the depth of that relationship. And I don't know, the older I get, I'm, I'm considerably younger than you are, Mark. The older I get— Oh, the, considerably. Let's not overplay it, Jason. The, the older I get, the, the sweeter funerals become to me, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So back to thinking of, of your successor. Um, do you so ever, have you picked what hymns you want at your funeral? Oh, absolutely. What have are you, they? Oh, I don't want to get into all that now. But oh, come on. I, I have a, a complete death document. That's Seriously, like wife. the queen, there's the queens, and then there's yours. No, 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 no. I don't mean that the funeral's not all that, but the death document is about seven pages. My wife instructed everything from, you know, passwords to here's what you should worry about, what you should not worry about. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into the post. But I'm thinking more particularly the funeral. I have very clear instructions about the funeral, about what I would like to take place in that service. Pallbearers, preachers, hymns, everything. Okay. Can I come? You can come, but okay. I, I can't guarantee you're going to be part of the service. I understand. I understand. That's our right. relationship may deepen That's in the years right. ahead. Okay. All I right. annually we'll revisit it. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Brother, thinking about your successor, do you pray? Do you ever pray for Capitol Hill's next senior pastor? Thank you for that question. I have done that. I do not do that regularly. I'm challenged by that. Thank you for that. Because I prayed for my wife for years daily before I knew her. What about your predecessor slash predecessors? Yeah. As a young man coming to Capitol Hill, did you see and really appreciate what they had done? Or perhaps some things that you, you thought, I wish they would have done this or not done that? Oh, that's an easy one in this case. Many of them had been very faithful men with teaching the doctrine of Scripture. So where a lot of Baptist churches in D.C. had kind of wandered away from believing the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, wandered away from believing Jesus is our only hope, uh, this church had remained very faithful to those things. On the other side, uh, there were a couple of the men who had failed due to immoralities with, with people, relationships that they picked up and carried on and did not repent of, as far as I know. And um, yeah. So those would be some differences. When you think about a pastor's tenure in a church and uh, that, that, let's say, coming to a conclusion, not just based upon hitting retirement age or, or you know, health circumstances, circumstantially, is there anything you encourage individuals who are pastors in churches to be mindful of that may be indicators that their ministry there is coming to a conclusion? Well, if you, you want to have people around you be honest with you about what they see. And if they see your, not just the affection for the church, because the affection for the church may be very strong for you, but if they see your ability to serve the church declining, particularly declining precipitously, then they should say something to you about that, that you should not be the last to know. They should raise that as a conversation. And I've got friends around and staff members who I think and hope will do that. So what would be some of those identifying marks? If you're a unable to present the teaching of the church, if you're unable to do the basic tasks of managing the church and or its staff, if you find you're increasing amounts of the work, you just simply have to give to other people. At some point in that, you have to ask, well, then should we at least redefine your role, you know, if not outright change your role? And then how how do you factor in, not that any of us want a cult of personality? Yeah. 
But let's just use Charles Spurgeon's example. Yeah. Um, we're okay. the Spurgeon Library. We're in the Spurgeon Library recording this. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you look at that and say, okay, uh, just clearly a generationally unique minister, unique gifting, God's uniquely blessing. And, of course, you know, Spurgeon obviously died not, not that old. But you look at that and you, you, in essence, you carry on that ministry as long as that person physically can yeah. till the end. And we might think yeah. of our own generation of John MacArthur, who yeah. you and I both know and love. Yeah. Or where you, you you take it a step back and say, okay, we don't want it to, to build, 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 and then this big drop. We want to try to have a, a managed transition. That Perhaps was Piper's for, attempt. Yeah, or, or, or you know, yeah. R.C. Sproul, you know, and bring in these yeah, other teachers. Right. And for so for Ligonier, not yeah. for St. Andrews, but for Ligonier. Right. So, again, assess that for us. Reflect on that with us. Yeah, I think what the, the friends at Ligonier did was very responsible in the way they uh, considered it. I mean, they knew R.C.'s health was poor. The church was well looked after by Burke. And the teaching ministry, they tried to develop these fellows that they would make prominent at conferences. And I think I think it's worked pretty well. I'll just say, as somebody who knew R.C. personally and loved him, I, I miss him. No um, number of teaching fellows makes up for R.C.'s absence. His good humor would put things in perspective in a room full of self-important preachers as quickly as anything I've seen. So, yeah, I, I think there are some ways that Yes, for institutions, certainly for Christ's church, God buries the workmen, but the work goes on. For other institutions, parachurch institutions, a seminary, nine marks, ligonier, desiring God, well, then it, it, it depends on, um, you know, what should happen. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is having a whole different kind of ministry right now through the MLJ Trust that he never imagined. He didn't, he didn't want even to have his sermons recorded, eventually uh, conceded that that was okay, just so it could go to missionaries in the Middle East. Uh, who couldn't go to church. But now you look at the millions of people who've listened to Lloyd-Jones' preaching, much more so than ever, I'm sure, when he was alive. And you just realize that the Lord does very surprising things. So to sharpen the question a little bit and and to personalize it to you, how much do you think about your own mortality? Oh, good bit. I mean, when uh, when I was an agnostic, so I was a young man, I remember looking at my hand and realizing this is going to be a skeleton in a box very soon. What do I want to do between now and then? And that was one of the things that began pressing me to think about questions of ultimate truth and eventually led me to Christ. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big memento more, big uh, remember your death. And uh, the role church cemeteries have played historically as yeah. a visible, obvious yeah. reminder. Yeah, very different than the kind of glitzy things we like to have around us at church today that hide us. It's not just church, it's our whole culture that hides death from us. Uh, I think we're the poorer for that. I don't think that means we have to have cemeteries around our church buildings, but it does mean there was a real pedagogical value in us weekly being reminded at the celebration of the resurrection together, that it was resurrection from the dead. Yeah. So when you think about the local church ministry, and again, the individual who would follow you or follow any minister as as the senior pastor or, or, or the primary teaching pastor, teaching influence, how much do you think the current minister— should speak futuristically about the next generation of ministry, the next minister, ministers who may come. Is that helpful even conceptually for folks to think beyond themselves? Or, I mean, you certainly want to preach the timeless truths of God's Word. And insofar as you help people to realize, insofar as Jim Boyce helped people to realize at 10th Press, this is what the gospel is, this is what the Bible is, this is what the mission of the church is, then those things, if the, if the members of the church are persuaded, if that's how they come to understand God's Word— then that will affect, you know, how the next ministry is carried on. So that's, uh, that's the same hope that I would have uh, for our church, 
in Washington. Uh, if I've been faithful with the Word, then the things that I've taught are going to be resounding and echoing in the Word, and other people will pick them up and teach them as well. One of the things I've deliberately tried to do is make sure that uh, I preach not every Sunday, so I preach half the Sundays. I'm there almost every Sunday. If I'm not preaching, I'm usually leading the service, so Dad's home. But just trying to make sure that the church is used to hearing other people preach and prospering from hearing other people preach so that that's not a jarring thing for them. So when you arrived at Capitol Hill in 1994, yeah. Yeah. how committed were you to this being this being the ministry? I was pretty committed. I, I said, I'm buying cemetery plots. Yeah. So you, you felt very strongly. Then. And how much I was that did. theological? I, how much of that, you know, as far as understanding what a knowledge of church history that— that Some, that, some church history knowledge. It was prudence. It was just being aware that among Southern Baptist pastors in the mid-90s, there were one, two, three-year pastors who were very common. Being aware that I was going into a difficult situation of a small church and that I thought any good answer to what's going on there would have to be long-term. Feeling also instructed by the long ministries of Charles Simeon in Cambridge and John Stott in London, that if you get in a kind of transition point where people come through a lot, and if you stand there for decades with an expositional ministry, uh, you can do a lot. And uh, seeing the examples of Simeon and Stott encouraged me in that. Again, you're 62, not 82. But if you had to sketch out uh, the marks of a healthy next pastor, yeah. You know, what, what comes to mind? What would you, not just theologically, but yeah. of course that, that's essential, but what would you point your people to be looking for in the next pastor? I want to see a man committed to expositional preaching, a biblical understanding of the, the gospel, especially of theology, a biblical understanding of conversion, of evangelism, of membership, of discipline, of discipleship and growth, of uh, the church structure, of having a plurality of elders. Right, but Mark, I would say to you, your church is deeply versed in that. That does not mean they need to continue to be taught that, yeah. but they're deeply versed in it. So yeah. I don't think the elders are going to look for anyone or consider anyone who falls outside of that. Well, I hope you're right. So then let's say the things that, that are not <clears throat> biblically paramount or you're are biblically more essential. Prudence than yeah, essential. or just, you know, like, again, you're a warm personality. Yeah. Uh, you, you have people skills, those sorts you know, of things. Now, warm personality, even the way I, like, answer questions in public sometimes? You sometimes have a warm personality. There we go, sometimes. There we go. That's Usually. More, that's more accurate. Often. Often. If you're not from Australia and claiming to be from, yeah, Missouri claiming to be from Australia. Um, yeah, I think that I trust that at the time that they will have the wisdom to naturally take into account how this person or that person would relate to others. And um, I, th- I think I'd, I'd have a hard time prescribing that ahead of right. time. Right. And so some churches say— Because people are just so unusually gifted. I mean, there aren't 300 Jason Allens aren't out there. You know, there, there aren't 600 Danny Akins out there. They're, they're not 30 Mark Devers or four Al Molers. I mean, just, you know, they're not six John Pipers. It's just there's everybody's a little different. Everyone's a little different. So right. thank God for Alistair Begg. Thank God for Buddy Bauckham. You know, thank God for Thabiti Anyabwile. I'm thankful for all these brothers. That's good. So to pull the conversation together here with a few final remarks, I, I guess when you think about your ministry, and no doubt you desire it to exist and, and not just exist, but excel far beyond you flourish far beyond you. And so that means you have an intergenerational stewardship now. Yeah, 2 Timothy 4.2 or 2.2. An intergenerational stewardship now. And so knowing that very likely one of these interns right now, one of these staff, associate staff members right now, current elder, might be your successor. Yeah. Not in a personalized sense to any one person, but generally speaking, knowing likely be plucked from that pool. What are you mindful of as you train them? 
Well, I, you know, honestly, I want to train them as well for any church as for our own church. So I just want men who are living godly lives, who are loving their wives and kids well, who are hungry for the Lord and hungry for His Word, uh, give themselves, take trouble to be good students of the Word, and are able to put it across in a way that people want to hear and the church is edified by. Very good. Mark, thank you for your time today on Preaching and Preachers. Jason, thank you for your always well-prepared question. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.